0: encouragement message us to do this and this morning to kind of of birth, uh, Jane, and so those Amen hey good morning everybody if you're joining us online thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we're going to continue kind of walking through the book of Nehemiah. I have absolutely loved just spending time seeing how this story plays out and uh, hopefully you have as well. Uh, earlier this week, we had one of our missionaries in, and some of you came on Thursday night, and you got to hear a little bit from uh, Alex Krutov. Uh, Alex uh, has an amazing, amazing story of growing up in the orphanage system in Russia. And a lot of times, like being American, we don't know a lot of Russians, and so like I always picture Russians as this big, kind of brooding, quiet uh, human, like man kind of guy, and that is not Alex. Um, Alex is very energetic to say the least and if you were here on thursday he was talking extremely slow for everyone um but his story growing up in russia and growing up actually because he's a couple years older than me he was born into the soviet union and so as a child he watched that country kind of fall apart and go from the soviet union into the russian federation and a lot of times if you look throughout history yeah there are times where a country disappears because it was taken over by someone else but a lot of times countries crumble from within. There are people who have different ideologies and they don't know how to express those. There's people with issues and problems and they don't know how to express that. And oftentimes what happens is something like the Soviet Union, it just collapses within itself. In the book of Nehemiah as we've kind of walked through, we've seen a lot happen already. We've seen Nehemiah be called by God, and we've seen him as a man who's super emotional of just kind of breaking down, knowing, hey, God's city is not being taken care of, and I know that God's calling me up to something great to take care of it. And we've watched him pray through that. We've watched him start to build the wall, and we've watched oppression happen. Like we've watched different groups come in and try and stop him, and yet he's continued on. But today we're gonna find something that will actually stop the building of this wall temporarily. And it's fighting from within. And it's an issue that it's not the outside forces anymore. Now it's the inside things uh, that we hold so dear that are fighting against Nehemiah. And so we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. You can follow along. Your Bibles will also have it on the screen, starting in verse 1. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For, those who, uh, were, uh, "'For there were those who said, "'With our sons and our daughters we are many, "'so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive.' "'And there were also those who said, "'We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, "'and our houses to get grain because of the famine. "'And there were those who said, "'We have borrowed money for the king's tax "'on our fields and our vineyards. "'Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. "'Our children are as their children. "'Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters "'to be slaves.' And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have come to our fields and our vineyards. So as this story has kind of gone along, we've seen a couple of different times where there's been some oppression against Nehemiah, there's been some opposition. The first way that it happened, it was just simply ridicule. You had some of the outside people who weren't Jewish that came in just with those nagging voices, those nagging comments that we all get in our life, and they ridiculed Nehemiah and they ridiculed the people of God. And then it kind of escalated from there and it actually became threats of physical violence where they said, hey, we're going we're gonna to sneak in at night. We're going to attack your city. We're going to tear down your wall. And Nehemiah said, okay, I can deal with that too. And so he armed the people and he put some to be builders and he put some to be guards and the wall continues on. But what you're going to find in this is infighting is one of the greatest dangers to kingdom advancement. Those outside forces, you know what, ridicule, everybody's dealt with ridicule at some point, Right? Like I've had, growing up, I've had people tell me, oh, you're short, oh, you're bald, like all those things. I don't really care. Sticks and stones, words don't hurt me. Not worried about that. Every now and then, it's not very often, but I've had threats of physical violence. But man, in fighting, especially within the body, within believers, this is one of the biggest dangers to kingdom advancement. And this new danger is pretty big, and it's not against Nehemiah so much. Like, they didn't come to Nehemiah and say, it's your fault that this is happening, but they brought a problem to him. And they came and they said, hey, we're being oppressed, we're being taken advantage of, and it's by these nobles and officials that you've got working all over, so we're bringing the problem to you because you're going to be the one who has to do something with it. And so when God's people start fighting each other, a couple things happen. One, if we're fighting with each other, we're not fighting against darkness. And there's a lot of darkness in the world. This week, as I was studying, just read some different articles, and man was reminded, there is an unbelievably dark sense in our world. It happens here in our own community. It happens abroad. And we're called to push back against that darkness. The gospel calls on believers to push back into dark places, to shine light into darkness. And when we're fighting with each other, we're not fighting the real enemy. And the other thing that happens is we're not getting God's work done. Man, all these different things should have stopped the building of this wall. I mean, think about just the manual labor aspect of it. How to get people motivated to go and dig up these bricks and these massive stones and put them back. And then you had outside forces making threats. All these different things that Nehemiah was able to lead people through and they were able to continue building this wall. But suddenly, this is something he goes, this is important enough that we're going to stop building the wall and take care of it. So if God's people are fighting with each other, we're not doing the work that God has called us to do. And this is how this plays out most of the time, right? Like within the church abroad, there are times where there are some outside forces that, that tear a body apart. Um, we as Americans don't experience that very often. But every year, 100,000 Christians die for their faith. This isn't 1,000 years ago. This is modern times. 100,000. That would fill just about any major sporting stadium. And so when we could meet in person, you would watch all of those fans screaming and yelling. That's the number of people who face outside forces and are martyred for it. And so that is a reality, but for us, most of the time, we don't really experience that. Uh, We face opposition, but we face it from within. Now, there are groups within, you know, America that say, hey, churches shouldn't be able to do this, churches shouldn't be able to do that, and that's there, but the biggest source of infighting comes from believers. This is a sad part, because this isn't just something that's unique to the states. We look all through Christian history, and what has torn the church apart, for the most part, is itself, because we fight over really dumb, trivial things. We just got done seeing. Music over the last couple of decades has been one of the most dividing things within the body of Christ. Because some of us grew up where the organ was over there, the piano was over there, and that's the way God wanted it, right? <laughs> some of you know that. And people said, No, we're going to blow this thing up. We got to have drums, we got to have guitars, we got to have lights, we got to have smoke. The music war has divided churches over and over and over again, and it's silly. And I'll confess, I've been on both sides of that. I've been on a side that was like, you know what? If you can't get with the way that my music is, you're just not being progressive enough. And that's youthful ignorance. Because the truth be told, one day when we get to heaven, we don't know what the music's going to be like. But when I read scripture, I find that there's like, It's not even the organ and piano. It's like cymbals and and lyres and things like that to where I'm going to get a gong one day and I'm going to bang that thing for all eternity to God's glory and make a joyful noise. But we let this divide over and over and over again. Even what I'm doing right now, when it comes to preaching, people have fought battles over that. It's almost like we got past the music thing and just went on to the next one it's like, well, does your church, is it topical? Do you do exegetical? Um, do you use this version of the Bible? Do you use that one? And we just let it divide us over and over and over again. And really what this comes down to is just, just preference. And a lot of times, like when it comes to teaching and things like that, if, if you only come to a church because you think the preacher is good, it'll get old eventually. Like I love what I do. I'm decent at it. But after a while, you'll hear the same stories. My wife is nodding. You'll hear the same things over and over again. There'll be some young, new, hip dude. Probably be bald and short, but he'll be younger than me and cool. And people go, no, we want that one now. But we let that divide us over and over and over again. Sometimes we let doctrine divide us when it shouldn't. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. And then verse 2 is interesting. And of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. What he just said there is hey, stop arguing over all things that you may not even completely comprehend. He talks about eternal judgment, he talks about end times. Like, that is one thing that people over the years, they have let doctrine in that completely divide them. Are you post-trib? Are you mid-trib? Like, some of you are like, I don't even know what you said to me. Here's the thing. When it comes to that area of Scripture, the people who know the real answers, they're not talking. They're dead. They're in heaven. And we'll find that out one day as well. But we've let that kind of divide us over and over and over again. We find so many things where we let our preference dictate what we think is gospel. And the gospel needs to dictate our preferences. And this infighting that's happening here is just big on that one. They're arguing over trivial issues. And sometimes infighting happens and a church is divided because of an obedience issue. Like if you look in Revelation before you get to all the craziness, there's these really beautiful letters that Jesus sends to these churches. My favorite one is the church in Ephesus. And it says, as he's describing this church, it sounds like a very model church that you and I want to go to. It sounds like they're very doctrinally sound, like whenever people bring in heretical teaching, they identify it quickly and they put it out. And they're reaching out, they're doing things. It sounds like a church you want to go to, but then Jesus goes, but you've abandoned your first love. And you need to return to that love or I'm going to take your lampstand. That lampstand is the church itself. Where Jesus says, hey, if you don't return to that first love, I'm going to take the church from you because you're just not, all this other stuff is good, but you've got to be obedient in everything. And their first love was just simply this real raw honesty that they had when the church first started. The church in Ephesus, I know some of y'all are studying it right now in equipping class, that was a dark, dark area. People having dinner with demons, all that kind of crazy. And then the gospel comes in and people are burning these books of witchcraft and they're just being very honest about, hey, here's where I'm struggling, but I love Jesus and I want to grow more. And, he goes, and Jesus says, you need that kind of obedience. The infighting and everything like that, It's not going to bring the people of God together. It's going to tear them apart. Why do some churches fail? It's usually from within. And so why was this such a big issue? Why were they having all of the infighting? Basically, it came down to there were a lot of poor people being exploited. And so they had some problems that they bring to Nehemiah. One, they said, hey, there was a famine. That was outside of our control. Like, no one gets to control that. If you prayed for that snowstorm the other day, quit that. Um, But... That's one that we don't control the weather, we just deal with it. And these people in a very agricultural society said, hey, there was a famine. We don't have crops. And so we're hurting because of that. Oh, yeah, and on top of that, we have to pay a tax uh, to the king for all these vineyards. And in this area, it's a very big wine country and a lot of olives and things that they would export. They were having to pay a tax on that. And so they come to Nehemiah and they say, man, we're hurting. But the biggest issue was they were being exploited by their own people. And so they come in, and the real problem is just the wealthy people had come in and said, you know what, we can take advantage of the poor, and that's what we're going to do. This is not a modern problem. (laughs) A lot of times, like if I were to say 1%, we are so ingrained, and we have heard that so many times in our culture, we think of, oh, the 1%, the, the unbelievably wealthy, and then there's just the rest of us. And that's not a modern thing. Throughout history... People who could take advantage of someone have bullied them. You see that in the French Revolution a couple hundred years ago. People that basically couldn't even get bread because they were uber wealthy people taking everything from them. And it led to a revolt and a revolution. You go back further, you look in Roman times, you go back all the way to Nehemiah, you had these people that had the ability to bully someone. And sometimes we've all done that, right? Like I I enjoy playing poker, and if I get up early in the game, It's not fun for everybody else. I remember years ago, I was playing, and I had, like, the first two hands, I had a whole lot more than everybody, and my buddy TJ is like, just kind of groaned and went, why'd you do that? He said, because you're a bully. Like, it's not going to be fun. You're going to just bully everybody else because you can. I went, yeah, (laughs) that's what I'm going to do. But when it comes to this, like, when it comes to someone's livelihood, that's a little different. You had these wealthy people that came in, and they were just taking advantage of the people, and they got into this really bad cycle where... There was a lack of food. Most major conflicts within the history of the world have been because of basic needs not being met. And so you've got these people and they're starving. And so they do what they can. They go to these wealthy landlords and say, hey, I'll mortgage off if you ever play Monopoly. They're at that point where you're having to flip the mortgage card. And they say, hey, we'll mortgage off the house and the vineyards and what property we have so we can get some quick cash just so we can buy grain. And that doesn't last very long. And then they get into a bad cycle where those landlords and nobles are coming to them and saying, hey, we're confiscating all of this. It's now ours because you can't pay us back. And the only means that they could find to pay that back was to put their children basically into indentured slavery. And so you've got fathers and you've got mothers that are having to look at their child like if you've got a kid. And I'm sure they say, I I love you. But in order to survive, you're going to have to go live at that estate and work all day until we can pay this off. And some of them had to look at multiple children that were being sold off. I can't fathom that. Like in, in today's society, we, we know like slavery is still a very real thing. It's very much a, a, a plight on humanity. But I can't fathom looking at one of my boys and saying that to them. And yet this is what these people are doing. So do they have a reason for an outcry? I would say yes. And so they bring this to Nehemiah, and they tell him the problem, they tell him the issues, and then we get to see how Nehemiah responds. In verse 6, I'm in the wrong book of the Bible. Verse 6 says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry. and these words, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are extracting interest, each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought our, back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've exacted from them. And they said, uh, then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment. And said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. I like Nehemiah's response. If, I could, if someone came to me with a problem of that magnitude, involving human souls that are being sold into slavery, I think I would have a response like Nehemiah, when it just says, I was very angry, and I heard their outcry in these words, and I took counsel with myself. Nehemiah is a pretty emotional guy. Like when he first hears about Jerusalem being in ruins and the walls knocked down, what does he do? Like he just mourns and he cries out to God. And when he hears this, he gets angry. He says, I took counsel with myself. Here's where, again, Nehemiah is a great leader. Like in my life, I have what I call the 24-hour rule. If something happens, it's like work-related or involving family where I'm really, really mad, I take 24 hours before I send like an email or message. Every now and then I don't, but most of the time I really try and stick to that. And one of the reasons is good things come from that. I remember years ago I was a student pastor at a pretty big church and we had multiple campuses and... I went to visit one of them one night, and I had a guy there. He's a great, great student pastor, and I had told him, hey, this is what everything kind of needs to look like, and this is how it's going to flow, and he said he was doing that. And I got there, and it was horrible. (laughs) Like, there was nothing happening like I thought it was. Um, There were some elements where I'm like, one, this is probably kind of dangerous. Two, this is unbelievably cheesy. And I just remember sitting in the back like, I'm going to fire you. (laughs) Like, I was so frustrated. I went home. I wrote like seven emails, and I deleted all of them. And I went to bed and I got up the next day and started thinking, I was like, I thought I had communicated what it's supposed to look like. Maybe I hadn't done that good of a job. Maybe this is on me. And so I sat down and I made what I called a blueprint. And it was, hey, this is what a Wednesday night looks like at our church. And it was pretty detailed. I gave a copy to my wife. She read over it and I said, hey, could you do that? And she's like, yeah. I sent a copy to a friend of mine that was in ministry and said, hey, if, I had, if you had like an hour, could you do this? Yeah. And then I gave it to all the staff. And everything got a lot better after that because no one needed to be fired. I just needed to take counsel within myself and calm down. And Nehemiah takes counsel within himself. And Nehemiah gets a little angry. What's interesting here is Nehemiah had already faced a lot of opposition. He had literally had people mocking him and making death threats. The guy Sandball, Tobiah, those people were mocking him, making death threats, but it never says he was angry with them. Nehemiah knows, hey, people outside of the church they don't know. Dead people don't make good decisions. They certainly don't make the right ones. So many times we put our anger and frustration towards people that have no understanding of what the gospel is. But here Nehemiah looks at these own people, these people that he had motivated, these people that were his, his family, his kin, his, his, his nation, and that's when he gets angry. Because he knows you should know better. You should know better than this. And so he gets frustrated. Now, anger's one, when we first read that, a lot of times we go, well, he shouldn't get angry, like we read in the New Testament, like, don't be angry. Well, there's two types of anger. One is sinful. One is the one that we most often do. It's the time where you're driving and somebody cuts you off and you yell or wave or something like that, and that's a moment of anger, that one would be sin. There's times even from a parenting standpoint, you overreact, something like that happens, it's a sin. Just general frustration, that's the sinful side of anger. I got to watch that last week. Anybody go to Market Street when there was, like, nothing else to go to? Oh, my soul. They didn't have milk. They didn't have bread. They had just got a pallet of water. You would have thought that was gold, the way that people were going after it. And there were tons of people there, and we were trying to just get in and get out really quickly. People are bumping shopping carts, and I'm watching people. I'm like, sin's about to happen. (laughs) Like, there's some people, like, (laughs) we were included, like, just bumping into stuff where I was like, Those two guys are about to fight. Like, I'm watching a pay-per-view, and I don't have to pay for it. It's just, you know, on Buffalo Gap Road. That level of anger where it boils over, that's the sinful side of anger. But there is a righteous anger. And we don't practice righteous anger often enough. Righteous anger is when we look at something that we know is wrong, we know it's sinful, and actually we, we put our anger towards that. That's why you see Jesus have a moment of righteous anger. He shows up to the temple. You know, the temple that Nehemiah is currently building a wall around. He gets to the temple, and the same thing that's happening to Nehemiah hundreds and hundreds of years later is still happening. People are being exploited. You've got these people that came in, and all these poor people are coming in, needing to make sacrifices, and they're exchanging money at these super, super high rates, just making money off the poor. And Jesus has a moment of righteous anger. He goes through. He's flipping tables. There's coins and money going everywhere. He makes a whip to drive the moneylenders out of the temple. And guess what? When Jesus throws a whip, he doesn't miss. He's created the thing in the first place. So try and hide behind something. Jesus can just make the whip, you know, looks like the matrix. And he's still driving these people out. Like there was a moment where he had this righteous anger going, this is my father's house and this is not how it operates. And he directed that anger towards that sin. And Nehemiah has a moment where, is he angry? Yeah. Does he have a right to be? Yes. Because he looks at one of the darkest things that humanity's ever dealt with, and enslavement of human beings, and goes, this is not okay. And so he does what Jesus would later teach. You read in Matthew 18, if you need to confront somebody, if there's a sin in someone's life and you need to confront them, there's a way to do that. And Jesus says, hey, first you go to them on an individual basis, in love, and you talk to them. And so that's where Nehemiah, once he kind of has that moment, he says... He he said, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. Now, at that moment, he's gone to these nobles, and these are people, he has to walk around this a little carefully. Because these are the people that are really driving a lot of the wall being built. He could have driven them off. He could have had a really tough time doing the wall after that, but he does it the right way. First, he goes to them and says, what you're doing is not right. You are taking from your own family. You are enslaving people that we're trying to save here. And so he does it on that basis, and apparently it doesn't work. (laughs) And so when that doesn't work, Matthew would tell us, the next step is, hey, get a couple people and go with you. Confront them again in love with other voices. And if that doesn't work, call the whole church. And so Nehemiah does that. He says, I called a great assembly. And he brings everyone together, and he points out a couple of things. One, he had to stop the work to do this. In order to call this great assembly, all this work that had been happening, the wall's halfway built, but man, there's an issue in the walls now. And so he says, that's a big enough thing, we're going to stop it. He calls an assembly, and he starts pointing out a couple things. One, he points out that, hey, you're being disobedient to God right now. Like, the way that you're acting is just going to allow our enemies to taunt us of, hey, one more time, look at God's people not being God's people. And we shouldn't give them that ammo. And so he calls this assembly because he understands, like, before you build bigger walls, you better have the walls correct inside. Like, the things inside the walls need to matter. And so he stops everything, and he calls this council, and he points out some things, and an amazing thing happens. Conviction sets in. And these nobles and these officials that a lot of times people that are very prominent don't like being told where you're wrong. A lot of us are like that. But man, conviction sets in. And now they're surrounded by everybody and they're looking at these faces of, oh, that's, that's this person. And yeah, I know that their kid is a slave in my house. Another guy looks around and goes, yeah, I've got all their kids at my house. And conviction sets in. And they said, yeah, we're not gonna do this anymore. And Nehemiah takes it a step further and says, hey, why don't you also give back all the stuff you've already taken? And they said, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> And in an amazing spot, Nehemiah even takes ownership of the problem. He says, hey, I'm lending money to these people and grain as well. Now, Nehemiah wasn't enslaving people. He was nowhere near as guilty as everyone else. But Nehemiah said, hey, I'm contributing a little bit to the problem. Being a good leader, I'm going to own that. I mentioned several weeks ago a book called Extreme Ownership. I highly recommend reading it. It's not scriptural, but just taking, taking charge of things. And Nehemiah says, hey, I'm part of the problem too, and I'm not going to do that anymore. And these nobles and the officials, they said, yes, we're going to return everything to the people. And so Nehemiah even takes it a step further in very Old Testament fashion. It says he shook out his garment. He would have been wearing this tunic over himself and had pockets and... You know, inside those pockets, whatever Nehemiah had for the day, maybe it was some tools, maybe it was some money, cell phone, that sort of thing. Literally, in a show of, this is what's going to happen to you if you break this promise, because he'd also called priests in and made them swear an oath to it. Literally, it's this man just shaking this thing. Things are flying out of his tunic until it's completely emptied. And he would have shown, it is now empty. And he was saying, you are going to follow this, because what you have done is a big deal. The nobles and officials do things that, if we're not careful, we can be guilty of as well. It was a big deal because the officials were being disobedient to the revealed word of God. These nobles and officials, they knew the Old Testament. They'd read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. They knew what it said about charging interest to people in your own country. They knew what it talked about when it came to slavery. They knew what it said, and they blatantly disobeyed it. And there's so many times, we know so much scripture and we read things, and if we're not careful, we get very disobedient as well. And that's not what we're called to do. God's people are called to obedience. And so before we get mad at people that don't know the word, we've got to look at ourselves and go, okay, I'm, I know what this says. Am I following it? Am I loving the way that I know God has called me to love? Love your neighbor as yourself. But what if my neighbor, did he stutter? No. <laughs> It's one of those, like he said, love them like yourself. And we've been called, and we know what God's word says when it comes to that, and we've been called to live out that love. We know the way that we've been forgiven. We have been forgiven of much. Our sin is in direct contrast to a perfect and holy God, the God who created everything that we see. And our sin rails against him. And yet he loved us enough to send his son, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life so that you and I could experience forgiveness. We have been forgiven of much. And we're called to forgive others in that same way. Are we being obedient when it comes to serving? Are we being obedient when it comes to go and make disciples? Are we being obedient when it comes to giving? Are we being obedient when it comes to showing grace to others? Like we read a lot in the word of God, just like those nobles and officials, and I don't want us to be them. I want us to be a people who are obedient. Another reason it was a big deal is they were putting their own personal prosperity above others. And if we're not careful, we will always look out for ourselves. And sometimes, yeah, maybe we'll throw a couple bucks this way, but it's more than that. See, Nehemiah looked and said, these are human beings. These are people that are starving. These are people that are in need. These are people that are being taken advantage of. I'm going to do something about that. We'll see next week in his generosity. Like, he puts others' prosperity above his own. And the gospel calls for a sacrificial living, not just giving. The gospel calls us to more. The gospel calls us to reach out, to try and make a difference, to push back darkness. Because we've got these very people among us. Like, one of the things is, that I read this week is, like, are you among the poor? Like, when you look around at your circle of friends and you look around at the things that you do, are you involved with anyone who is really poor, because we have really poor people in our community. I was talking with someone this week and they were trying to, they work in the school system, they were trying to locate a kid. They got the address and they go to this house and they said, hey, does so-and-so live here? And they went, no. I said, well, we've, this is the address that we have. And they said, that's my address. They live out back in a shipping crate. And They just had to put that address so the kid could go to school. That's poor. And that's right here in our own community. And that's who we have been called to love on, to be gracious towards, to reach out to. I love the way that we do this at our church, and I want us to continue that. Things like the pantry, things like outreaches that we do, like we have been called to put others above our own prosperity. Is there anything wrong with being wealthy like one of these guys? No. I'm not one of those, you know, people are like, it shouldn't be billionaires. Well. I've got some friends that say that, and if they were put in charge of a, you know, multinational company, they would drive it into the ground in about six minutes. So I'm glad that we have some of those people. But are we called to exploit? No. Our own prosperity, I want us to prosper. God's called us to that. You know, the plans that I have for you. (laughs) But at the same time, we have been called to reach out, and we've been given the opportunity, and we've been given the means. And the gospel looks at us and says, hey... What are you doing to reach out? What are you doing to protect? What are you doing to raise someone up from oppression? And I know that that's what God has called his church to do. When we look at it today, it doesn't take long to open our eyes and look around and see that, yes, there's a big task in front of us. Can we reach out to people? Most certainly. If we're infighting and we're arguing over trivial things, will it happen? Not quickly. Not quickly. I love the unity at our church. We talk about it a lot. We pray about it a lot. We talk about fighting for it a lot. Because if you've ever been at a place that's not unified, you know it really quickly. And that's one. My prayer this week, as we talk about this, is that we stay unified. I know things can come up that would you start talking about unity and things come up that pull people apart. And I want to fight against that. I want to be a people that reach out. I want to be a people like Nehemiah that have a righteous anger and look and go, that's not okay, and I know that God's called us to do something about it. And so let's be that people. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, thank you for all that you're doing in the life of our church. and God, thank you for the calling that you've placed in our lives. God, may we be a people that are unified and not... Fight over trivial things, God, but we will keep our focus on you. When we keep our eyes on you, that's a good place to be. Because you're the God that looks out on people that have been oppressed by sin and loves them enough to send Jesus. And if there's anyone that's here today or watching online that doesn't know what it looks like to have a personal relationship with Him, it's not about just going to church, it's not about being a good person. Sin is our oppressor. Every one of us are sinful. We've all sinned. It separates us from God. But in his grace and love and mercy, he sent his only son who lived a sinless life to lay his life down as a sacrifice for our sin. And it's only through him do we come to you. And so if you've never done that before, I would encourage you to come talk to me. It's amazing when God takes something that's dead and makes it alive. We celebrated it this morning with baptisms in the first service. God, thank you for what you're doing there. God, we love you. Give us the opportunity to reach out this week. Make it clear. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.